It is usually feared by Christians, and it is reviled by the powers that be in the world, but evangelism was our Lord's final command to his church before he was bodily taken into heaven. In fact, this great commission, this giving of the task of evangelism, was not just given once, although if you want to see the last giving of it, you can look at the book of Acts or you can look at the ending of Luke. But according to the gospel writers, Jesus, risen from the dead bodily, uh, spent 40 more days with his disciples. And he was teaching them in those 40 days, specifically concerning evangelism, And because that was his focus for those 40 days, we actually have what we call the Great Commission given multiple times in the Gospel and Acts in slightly different words because they represent different times our Lord was teaching. And that was his focus. You will be my witnesses in all Judea and Samaria. To the uttermost parts of the earth you'll go as my witnesses. You will bear witness of me. This is my great commission to you. Go and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Make disciples by teaching and baptizing. Teach them to obey everything I've taught you. This was our Lord's final earthly concern. But as I said, it tends to scare us to death. There have been seasons when the church has been more obedient in this matter than now, we are actually at a very low ebb right now. Uh, Churches that call themselves evangelical don't tend to evangelize. Uh, It's just not happening, statistically. Um, uh, It's easy to see why it frightens us, honestly. Uh, It makes us uncomfortable, without doubt. It exposes us to social danger. Uh, It would be really great wouldn't it, if our Lord who gave the Great Commission, our Lord who emphasized this at the last, if he would have taught us by example, if the Lord had actually uh, done it in front of us and uh, we could learn from the very Master himself who was commanding it, that would just be wonderful. And it turns out we have it. The account of the woman at the well is very well known. It's it's a famous passage of scripture. Uh, It's Jesus doing the Great Commission. Everything he commands us to do, to make disciples by teaching, that sort of thing. Uh, He didn't baptize her, but otherwise, everything that we're commanded to do, he's doing right here. And so our Lord is leading by example. What do we make of what we see here? Well, I will guarantee you that in the first 26 verses, I will not do them total justice in one sermon, but there are a number of things that that stand out, and uh, uh, let's watch our Lord evangelize. The very first thing that stands out to me is that Evangelism is a divine appointment. In verse 4, we read the tantalizing words, 
But he needed to go through Samaria. We know more about the Roman world than we know about the world that came right after it. The Romans kept remarkably good records, and uh, the day-to-day affairs of their eras, we generally you know, pretty much know what happened. There was a road between Galilee and Judea that ran through Samaria. And it was the straightest route. But it was not the road that was taken by the majority of people. It was there, and it was under the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Nobody was overtly trying to kill anybody else, at least as far as on a large scale. But as the woman points out to our Lord, Jews and Samaritans don't get along well. Galilee and Judea represented the remnant of the Jewish folk, but Samaria sat right in the middle, and Jews didn't tend to want to go through Samaria. Because of that, there was a road that led from Judea up the coast and cut over. There was also a road that crossed over the river and ran through what we now call Jordan and dropped back in. And these two other roads, maintained at least as well as the central one, tended to have the majority of traffic. And so commentators have marveled at this statement, Christ had to go through Samaria. Why would he have to do that? Maybe the major thoroughfare was closed, maybe bandits or flooding or what have you. Maybe, but there are two major thoroughfares besides this one, one along the coast and one through the desert, And the likelihood that both of them would be shut down by something at the same time is very small. But our Lord had to go through Samaria. What is John trying to say? Well, the reason why our Lord has to go is our Lord is doing his Father's will, and our Lord has a divine appointment. It is God's will that he speak with this woman. He will find her by a well. He is God as well as man. He knows his father's business. And God has from eternity appointed that this conversation will take place. Our Lord has to go because she's sitting there, and she is one of the elect of God, and Christ is going to bear the gospel to her. Such it is when God sends his witnesses, it is a divine appointment. Nothing happens randomly. Nothing happens by accident. They must happen from the point of view of God. And our Lord is going to win a soul this day in Samaria. Thus, he must go. Evangelism takes place often in the course of very routine life. We see our Lord on a journey. He comes to a point where he is tired. He sends his disciples into town to gather goods. All very ordinary, very mundane. Nothing particularly special about it. Nothing particularly organized about it. Our Lord is living a normal day, and so is the woman at the well. And in the context of these very mundane moments, Our Lord evangelizes this woman. 
I pastored among the Dutch in Iowa for a decade. It was an interesting experience. Uh, There was much to honestly hold in high regard among them, not the least of which was their attitude about seeing the hand of God in the mundane of life. They were farmers, and uh, I was from the Bible Belt. I was from Kentucky, and we Kentuckians tend to talk about God at God times. We talk about God in church. We talk about God at a Christian meeting. But among these Dutch farmers, they would speak of God in the commonplace. They would talk about God on their tractors. They would talk about seeing the hand of God when they went about their normal affairs. God was as real to them as their tractors and as their cattle. And I admired that because God is. God is present in the mundane of life. And obeying God happens in the mundane of life. God is winning this woman in a very typical, ordinary day. But not a day which isn't overshadowed by what God has done in the past. In verse 5 through 6, John wants us to know this is no ordinary place. This is where Jacob had his well, and it was the providence of God that the well should be here. God, in times past, had given to Jacob the water Why does John go into detail here to tell us that? He could have easily said, you know, our Lord is sitting by a well in the story. Well, it's subtle, but John wants you to realize the gospel our Lord is going to speak. He's going to talk about water. He's going to talk about living water that wells up inside of someone to eternal life. God has foreshadowed this message. God has typified this message. This message can be found deep, deep in the Hebrew Scriptures. God gave to Jacob a well, and it was the kindness of God in many water. But what God had been doing with his visible church for all these millennia was designed to point to Christ. And today, Christ is going to look at something God had done in the former times, and he would bring forward its meaning and point to himself. God gives wells of water, but there is a well you don't want to miss. And that is what the gospel is. That water is what God gives. Evangelism puts out the fires of balkanization. The Samaritan woman is surprised that our Lord will speak to her. She has every reason to be surprised. Ever since the Assyrians resettled the people who would be the Samaritans, they intermixed them with the remaining poor Jews in the land. There had been bad blood between the Samaritans and the Jews. Really bad blood. We are not used to thinking in those terms because our Lord's teaching has kind of taken the rough edge off of it. I mean, his, his teaching about the 
good Samaritan has led us to think of Samaritans in very positive terms, not realizing when our Lord gave that parable, it was shocking. Because no Jew would have thought of a Samaritan as good. The emphasis was on that word, good, and when Jesus talked about a good Samaritan, they must have gone, really? It would be very similar to, uh, well, you can bring up your own examples. I don't need to do that. But there is serious bad blood here. But the gospel is what can erase that kind of thing. We live in a day where, thanks to the powers that be, we are encouraged to hate those of social levels above us and to hate those of social levels below us. We are encouraged by the powers that be to hate those that don't look like us. If there is any difference among men, the powers that be want to exploit that and want you to hate others because it benefits them. There's power in that for them. And this is not exactly a new phenomenon. Rulers have been doing that, have been balkanizing the world since time immemorial, and they're only adding to a phenomenon that human sinfulness naturally does. As our catechism points out, I am by nature prone to hate God and to hate my neighbor. It is a human thing to hate. But the gospel unites men in Jesus Christ. I grew up singing red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. As a four-year-old, I had no idea how utterly radical and political that statement was. It is the only way red and yellow, black and white, will ever come together and will ever know peace. If Jew and Samaritan can be united in the gospel, there is no division that can't be united in the gospel. Jesus will put out this fire of hatred she has known and she has participated in. Evangelism is strictly about Jesus Christ. When our Lord himself evangelized, listen as he himself describes the content of what he is sharing. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you knew who I was, says Jesus, you'd turn to me and I would give to you living water. I am the one who can give it to you. If you knew who I was, you would be begging me for the living water. Well, who are you? Well, as our passage comes to a close, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you 
and he. The gospel is about Christ and nothing else. The disciples of Jesus Christ have endured two millennia of the world telling us you need to be earthly minded, you need to be earthly good, you should proclaim earthly things because earthly things are useful. When Jesus proclaimed the gospel, he proclaimed, I am the Christ and I can give you living water that will well up for eternal life. Our Lord's example is that he is so heavenly minded, he can be earthly good. He can put out the fires of organization. He can save the soul because he points to heavenly things himself. The social gospel was not a gospel. The social gospel erased the gospel. Uh, ministry to the poor is not the gospel. Now, it's something that we ought to do, but it's not the gospel. Uh, racial reconciliation, which I just spoke about, is not the gospel, though the gospel is ministry to that. The gospel is Jesus Christ, him alone. The good news is God has covenantally provided you the prophet, the priest, the king, that you need to be reconciled to him. It is the Lord Christ, the Son of Mary, who walked among us, the very person of Jesus. He is the gospel. And if you're not presenting him, you're not presenting the gospel. On the other hand, if you are presenting him, you are presenting the gospel. And he is the prophet. So if you are speaking of what our Lord says is the truth as opposed to error, if you're speaking of what our Lord proposes is good as opposed to evil, uh, that's not moralism, that's part of the gospel, for he is the prophet. If you are speaking of his blood that atones, if you are speaking of the fact that he is perfectly pure, that he can give his blood, which is the heart of the general gospel presentation among evangelicals, you're definitely preaching the gospel. That is the gospel. If you are speaking of our Lord's kingship, his subduing of wicked men to himself, of his curbing the sins of wicked people and converting them by his power, his predestination, that's the gospel too. Because that is the Christ, that is Jesus of Nazareth, that is the good news. He is priest, but he's also prophet. He's also king. And if you proclaim him, you're proclaiming the gospel. But it is about him. The power in evangelism comes from Christ. I remember years ago, having first been converted in a very theologically nebulous place, Arminian, I suppose, but nobody was theologically astute enough to use that term. I was given the picture of evangelism that it rested upon my shoulders to win people to Christ. In the verse that we just read, Christ says, if you knew who I was, I would give you, if you asked me, living waters. 
I would give them to you, they would well up inside of you. They would come to eternal life. Notice that Christ, when he gives the Great Commission, say at the end of Matthew or at the beginning of Acts, never contradicts that. When he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching and baptizing, he never then says, now, you know, the, the burden shifting from me to you, so, you know, do the best you can. Not at all. When the Lord sends us to evangelize, and he does, he says, teach them to obey everything I have commanded you, which would include to evangelize, which would include every disciple. The weight of seeing things happen is on him. You have no ability to give anyone living water. Your best ability will not cause that to happen. Be as eloquent and winsome and psychological as you can get. Living water only comes from Jesus Christ. From him shall come the power. From him shall come the increase. Uh, it has amazed me through my, uh, my walk of discipleship. When I think about evangelism and when I think about where God has acted... The truth is, I have seen men subdued to Christ and converted in situations where it was very awkward. And you would have thought, well, that was terrible. But God moved. God is sovereign. God does what he will. I have watched wonderful orthodox presentations of the word from good-hearted men which God has chosen, at least at that moment, not to supply any fruit for. It's up to God. Who will give living water? Christ will give the living water, and him alone. The lost don't actually know what they need. Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes that God has put eternity in their hearts. Paul, in Romans, expresses well that men have a sense of right and wrong because of their conscience. Their conscience sometimes accuses them, sometimes doesn't. Men have a sense that they need, but they don't really know what they need. That's something that one needs to know if one is going to obey the Great Commission. In verse 10 the woman doesn't really understand what Christ is saying about living water. She says, give me this living water so I can not thirst. Uh, she's thinking in very physical terms. It's hard to blame her. Uh, she's at a well, and she's at a well at a moment in the day when most of the time uh, genteel people are not at the well. It's been pointed out many times that the woman at the well is here at this particular hour, so she won't meet anybody. She is very aware of her social status that Christ will bring up. Uh, she'd be very glad to have water that would keep her from having to come back to this well because of social stigma. She doesn't realize she's dead inside. She knows she has a need. She, she, there, there, there's guilt there is, there is a sense of emptiness. Ask anyone. Ask anybody who doesn't know Christ. Uh, 
You ever have a feeling that there's just a yawning emptiness inside of you and nothing really actually means anything? Uh, even the most rugged extrovert, if you get them at right times, will say, yeah, you know, that's why I drink, you know, or what have you. There's a sense among men that there's something missing, but what is it? She doesn't know. They don't know either. The Lord has to make them know. And the Lord does here with her. Uh, for those who are given by God to know what they need, the gospel is like cool, crisp, refreshing water to a parched, parched man crawling in the desert. That is our Lord's description of it. I will give you living water. This is Jacob's well. Why did Jacob need a well? It's the desert. There's no water to be found. There's only dryness. In fact, did you notice in the, the psalm that we sang at the beginning of worship, Psalm 32, you've got a man there who's converted, but he's hiding his sin from God, and he's not willing to confess his sin. And he says, when I kept silent, my bones ached, my moisture dried away. That's actually a pretty good translation of Hebrew. I parched. It was like liquid just drained out of me. If you've ever been in the desert not having water, this is a powerful image. Nobody knows their need better than somebody without water in a desert. And when water comes, it is like heaven has touched you. I've never lacked water in a desert. I have lacked it in a rainforest, and it's about the same. There is a cool, refreshing sense of life that just fills the body. You know that death is giving way to life. That's what the gospel does for those whom God gives them knowledge and gives them conversion. We fear evangelism because we fear social frustration. We fear social awkwardness. But consider what God does through evangelism. He changes death into life. He converts a soul. He pours out living water into parched lives. They may be awkward now, but you are the tool in God's hand to change a life forever by giving it life. The gospel is like nothing else. The gospel is life itself. And God is pleased to work the gospel. Do not hear me saying, you work the gospel. You don't do that. But you are in God's hand to work the gospel, and you will be his tool to give life itself. How can we desire that not happen? Do you like being alive? Do you remember before Christ? Do you, uh, do you shudder in horror now at the contrast if you happen to be someone who had a past before Christ? Some of us grew up as covenant kids and don't really remember that time period. That wasn't me. I got converted at 14. Uh, I have vivid memories of how I thought and felt. And it's me, 
But it's a dead me, and it's a me I don't even understand anymore. I am overjoyed. God has elected me to eternal life and has converted me by the gospel. There is no greater joy in my life that that has happened. That's what's going to happen to those who hear the gospel. It is the most blessed gift that can be given. When God gives the power in the gospel, it is forever. It is eternal life. That is how our Lord describes it. If you knew who it was who asked you for water, you would ask of him, and he would give you eternal life that would last forever. It is a psychological cruelty to tell men that eternal life is on again and off again. But that is the current understanding of the vast majority of evangelicals. God converts the soul by the gospel, but you got to hold on to that puppy because you can lose that water and you'll be back to parched. That's not how Christ describes it. Christ describes it as everlasting. This water will well up to eternal life. Your physical death won't cause this life to go away. Nothing will cause this life to go away. When God gives living water, it is forever. Why did it develop in the Christian church this theology that makes men afraid? Well, the answer is pretty obvious. It's a controlling mechanism. If I can teach you a theology that tells you you have to hold on to your salvation, that it's a matter of you maintaining that living water, I have you in the grip of fear. And I can coerce you to do what I want you to. And that's exactly how Arminian theology works. The minister can beat you to make you do what he wants. Because you're going to lose your eternal life otherwise. Now the truth is, I want you to be a peculiar people. I want you to be zealous for good works, which God has prepared before time ever began for you to walk in. I want you to glorify God. But it's not a matter of me making you do it any more than it's a matter of me saving your soul. The Lord God saves and the Lord God sanctifies. Um, it's cruelty to teach men that eternal life isn't. It's very clear from what our Lord says to this woman, God knows. Go and bring your husband, says our Lord, who already knows what's happening. The woman has to say, well, you know, um, I don't have one. And the Lord, who is totally man, but also totally God, says, yep, you're right, you've had five husbands, and there's a sixth guy involved, and he's not even willing to call himself your husband. So you've spoken very adequately. 
Why does Jesus do this? Well, it's something that, as being totally God, he can do, and we can't. But he is showing God knows. There is no sin in your life that you can, to use the words of the Book of Common Prayer, cloak or dissemble before God. That's a a wonderful little phrase in the Book of Common Prayer. It comes right at the moment where in the worship you're being called to confess your sins, and the minister says, let us not cloak our sins nor dissemble them. What is he saying we shouldn't do? Well, we shouldn't try to hide them, and we shouldn't try in God's eyes to make things look better than they are. Because God knows. When you come to God, God knows everything. There's nothing to hide, nothing to talk away, because God knows. Jesus is pretty matter-of-fact, in fact, here. Jesus does not show any hint of anger, yet he is very clear about sin. We talk about God being wrathful. What do we mean by that? Well, we don't mean that God is in the grip of passion. His anger is such that it boils over and he cannot control himself. He just smashes sin because he finds it so abhorrent that he is in the grip of his emotions. If you read the confession, we clearly confess God is not in the grip of passions. When we say God doesn't have passions, it doesn't mean he doesn't have emotions, but it does mean that God is not controlled by anything. If we see God's wrath that way, we're totally missing it. The term wrath is a legal term. It's what a judge brings to bear in his courtroom, you are found guilty, the judge brings the force of law down upon you. Should the judge be moved by his emotions in this event? The answer is no. A judge in a secular courtroom who is moved by his emotions is in fact being unjust. He is there to minister the law He might hate you. He might not. Probably doesn't. He's got a job to do, and it's to bring justice to bear. And when he does it, he brings the wrath of the state. Just so, God, who literally knows everything that's happening on this earth, uh, he's not motivated by his passions to slap sin. He is motivated by justice. He is motivated by his holiness, but you're not particularly making him angry and forcing his hand. And you can see this in how Christ speaks. You have broken the laws of God, right and left. I know that you've had five husbands. I know that you're living in adultery at this very moment. There it is. Our Lord is dispassionate, but very clear. And those who would follow his example probably should be likewise. Among those who talk about evangelism, one of the things that gets mentioned is, uh, how do you deal with the concept of sin? If you're Joel Olstein, you don't. You just throw sin away, and then you have this good news. 
that's very hard to understand why it's good news. What problem do you have? And then you have men like Brother Jed, who used to travel these parts and go to colleges and spend two or three days shouting at college students about their sins and not actually sharing the gospel and then leaving. Uh, How do you deal with sin? Well, you deal with it the way our Lord does. He is, very matter of fact, he doesn't hide the issue of sin. Why do you need good news? Why do you need saving? It's because you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We're, we're permeated with sins. That's why Jesus died. And we need to talk about that. But we don't need to get angry about that. Uh, we live in a world of such sin you cannot even fathom how much sin is there. And the closer you get to the Lord, the more you'll see your own sin. And you'll be amazed at how much sin is there. We are a, a race drowning in sin. There is no need to be offended at someone else's sins. Uh, there's plenty of our own that we could be offended at. It's really something to address matter of fact. Sin is, there's no need to hide it, but there's no need to get angry. The gospel is the cure of sin. And we see our Lord uh, talk about that as it stands. As he brings up sin, we watch the lost attempt to deflect our Lord in theological talk. Right after he mentions sin, uh, this is what the woman says. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Where did that come from? Well, it came from deflection is where it came from. And I've watched that happen many, many times. Someone gets nervous talking religion, and so they throw out a religious question that is guaranteed to take you down a rabbit hole, and that's actually what they want to have happen. Uh, This is the natural rabbit hole for a Samaritan to throw out for a Jew. And interestingly... Our Lord goes down the rabbit hole a little. The fact of the matter is, God does care about doctrine, and she's asked a doctrinal question. Our Lord doesn't say, now, you know, we need to focus on the central thing, and that's me. We're only going to talk about that. He is only talking about himself, but the question she's asked, actually, he bears on it. And so he answers her doctrinal question briefly. He says, you know, God is in covenant with the Jews. Uh, Salvation comes from the Jews. The Jews are right on this issue. But it is the will of God that we worship him in spirit and in truth. This is going to happen through the Messiah. The Lord is looking for people like that to worship him, to worship him in their spirit. That is the, the whole inner man and with integrity and to truly worship him not just go through the rites and there's going to come a time when because of the Christ men will be able to do that uh, without reference to an earthly temple because the heavenly temple is opened Uh, our Lord goes into that but just briefly and he steers her back to himself 
that's what comes next. I know that when Christ comes, he'll tell us everything. That was the intended purpose. But God cares about doctrine. And the gospel is inherently doctrinal. Those who would tell you you can share Christ without doctrine, well, they just shared a doctrine with you, and in fact, a false one. Uh, The gospel has a content. When we say the gospel is Jesus, Jesus has a content. When we say Jesus is the Christ, there are things we are saying about him, and that's doctrinal. And our Lord has asked a doctrinal question. It is designed to throw him off. He doesn't go down a rabbit hole, but he does answer the doctrinal question. It's important to him. What is really happening in evangelism? It is our Lord using his servants to reveal himself. The last stinger of this example is Jesus saying, I am he. That's what evangelism does. It pulls back the veil and shows men who Jesus really is. I find it interesting that the last book of our New Testament is called The Revelation of Jesus Christ. It's it's right there in the text. The word revelation means the pulling back of the veil, so you can really see what's there. Uh, Evangelism isn't particularly a skill. Evangelism isn't only for the talented. Evangelism is showing men Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ showed Jesus Christ to this woman at the well and saved her soul. Because what is eternal life? Jesus will tell his disciples on the night he is betrayed. It is to know you, the Father, and your Son, Jesus Christ. That's what eternal life is. Eternal life is knowing Christ. Knowing him relationally. Knowing him covenantally. Knowing him in a saving way. Eternal life is Jesus. I tell you, I am he, says Jesus. And that's the singer. May God give us grace to emulate him who has clearly shown us what he once done.